So we're going through this series on a healthy church, what a healthy church is. And, and if you just started coming to our church, or maybe you have been coming, but you uh, suffer from long-term memory loss, um, the great thing is, is that you can go online now, and you can hear the sermons. They go all the way back to October, when we started talking about what a healthy church is. And this isn't just a sermon series. This isn't just a trend. It's not just, oh, this is, you know, something the pastor cares about today. No, what I'm trying to help you understand is this is what I believe the Bible teaches us the church is. And that if, as we move forward, that we're going to increasingly become more and more like this. That we already are like it in some ways, but like any Christian or any church, we're nowhere near perfect, and we're nowhere near where we, where we need to be, and, and we have to always be careful of getting, getting sidetracked, about caring more about things that the world cares about more than what God cares about, that our focus is not on, on necessarily being bigger, but our focus is on being healthy. And as we're healthy, if God brings growth, that's God's business. But the focus is that we would be a healthy church. And so I encourage you to go back. If, if you think like, oh, going back to October and listening to all these online messages is a bit much, well, you can do the Cliff Notes version and just flip over your notes and you can see you know, about nine different characteristics of a healthy church. But... One of the reasons we need to be a healthy church is what we're going to talk about today. Because one of the things that a church should be doing is it should be meeting the needs of people. The song we just sang, the song we just sang, talked about how when people knew who Jesus was and what Jesus could do, that, that the lame and the blind and, and all of those in need, that they, they ran to him. They saw him as someone who could help. And one of the ways that we know that we're a healthy church is, is, is when people know that this is a place that they can come for healing and strength and comfort. And they run to us. But we got to be ready. We got to be healthy first. Because what happens if next week 300 unhealthy people in need suddenly come here? What's going to happen to us if we're not healthy? We'll fall apart. It's what they always say in the, you know, when they give you those instructions when you're on the plane, right? If those oxygen masks come down, they don't say, hey, be self-sacrificial and just start putting the mask on all the people around you. They always tell you, put the mask on yourself first, then help others. So it's important that we be healthy as we reach out to help others. It's not that we can't help others even now. We can help others now. It's not that. But it's that if we're going to become that healthy church that can really bring healing to this world, that we need to get there. We need to get there. If you haven't noticed, you know, things have changed in the world. And, and we see it coming up in in some pretty serious ways, and we see things that come up in not as serious ways, ways that are 
in some ways kind of fun. And it, you know, one of the things we see it is in our foods nowadays, in our, in, in you know, the, what they sometimes call fusion food. So, so I try my own hand at this sometimes. I love to make uh, cold brew coffee, and I love really spicy food. So I got it in my head that if I get my cold brew coffee, the grounds, and I put habanero pepper in the grounds and then brew the coffee, I could have really spicy cold brew coffee. And I did, and it was really spicy. I kind of liked it, but I know a lot of people would be like, ah, you know, it doesn't sound that good to me, whatever, or, you know, take it or leave it. There's other fusion foods that, you know, I think I've told you guys about before, but when I was growing up, you know, I loved, um, you know, I loved tacos. I loved to eat tacos. Um, I, if my mom made tacos, I would eat until it ran out of shells. And, uh, you know, you guys know my mom's Korean, and so I love Korean food, too. So a few years ago, this whole fusion kind of thing happened, and they made Korean tacos. And I was like, oh, this is awesome, right? So sometimes we bring things together, and they're, they're great, they're awesome. Things that, you know, why didn't I think of this? I liked Korean food, I liked tacos. Why did I never think about bringing them together? Sometimes, ah, it's okay. Take it or leave it. And then there's certain mixtures that are, that are kind of deadly. If I told you, you know, I want to do this fusion thing where I get, you know, I get drinking water and, you know, I put a little cyanide in it just for flavor. You'd be like, oh, that's probably not a good idea, Matt. It's dangerous. We're going to talk about a mixture that's dangerous. And it's this mixture of motivation that we have when we want to do good. I think a lot of people, for different reasons, want to do good. And somewhere in their reasons is actually kind of a good reason, but it's usually mixed with other things. And let me just make sure you understand this. If you want to do good things and help people in need and things like that, and do it for the wrong motives, okay? That's better than not doing good at all. So don't, don't take this as like, whoa, you know, I can't have pure motives, so I'm not gonna help anybody. If you wanted to give me a million dollars because you wanted to show that you're superior to me, I'm a better person, I, I can give a million dollars away to you, poor pastor. I'll take it. I'll take it with all your terrible motives, right? Because even if someone has bad motives, you know, the, the help still happens. Paul writes about this in Philippians when, he's, when he hears about all these guys. Philipp, Paul's in prison and he can't go out and preach. And so when he can't go out and preach, other people are going out and preaching, but they're doing it for selfish reasons. They're doing it because they're trying to make a name for themselves. And if you remember what Paul says, he says, Hey guys, yeah, it's not great that they're doing it for selfish reasons, but you know what? The gospel's being proclaimed. Something good's coming out of something not that great. Well, sometimes we also, you know, do good and for, with mixed motives, and, and it looks good in the eyes of others. It makes us look good in the eyes of others. 
And people don't know your heart. They don't know why you're doing it. And so there is some benefit to it. But what we need to understand is that when we do things with mixed motives, it's unacceptable to God. I remember a campaign for a charitable organization that was very big, very popular, and they were, the, 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 the tagline was, give because it feels so good. Okay, it's great. But God's standard is different. You don't give because it feels good. If God only gave because it felt good, we wouldn't have had Easter last week. Do you think it felt good when Jesus was hanging on the cross? Do you think it felt good when the people that he came to save were mocking him? Do you think it felt good when they were beating him? Do you think any of that felt good to him? It didn't. The Christian standard isn't give because it feels good. There's another reason we give. There's another reason that we meet the needs that are around us. So we live in this world. We live in this world that has this kind of fusion idea, these mixed motives for doing good. And again, it's better than not doing good, but it falls short of God's standard. You see, some people like to, to, to do good because, you know, they want to be the hero. They want to come in and save the day. Others want to be able to, to feel like they're making a difference. Others is because they have this need, and the need they have is the need to be needed. And if they don't feel they're needed, they won't necessarily give, so they always are looking for needy people to help because they need to be needed. Others feel guilty. There's a reason why charitable giving goes up in November and December. There's a reason why, you know, like a lot of these uh, homeless shelters and food banks, food pantries, food ministries, say, don't give to us in November and December. Everybody gives to us in November and December. Give to us in June, when no one's thinking about us. Why? It's kind of, in a way, it's, people kind of feel guilty. They know the holiday season and Christmas has, has become just this commercialized glut of materialism. It's just, you know, go crazy. It's overspend on ourselves and on our family and our kids. Oh, but, you know, there's people in need. So let me kind of assuage my guilt a little bit. Different reasons. And again, some people just give because for them it feels good to give. So what is Jesus going to teach? Well, again, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, now we're in chapter 6. And Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, this is what it means to follow me. It's not about just having all these right beliefs and some good feelings. This is what it means to, be, to follow me. In fact, he's not just saying this is what it means to be following, follow me. He's saying, if you, human beings, want to live in the best possible way, have the best possible societies, the best possible community, the best possible life, the best possible future. This is how you should live. And so if you go back over the, the previous sermons, you can see where he's, he's talking about the way that we should live. And so here, 
he's going to talk specifically about meeting people's needs. So in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying we, we need to meet the needs of other people. We need to see needy people, but we need to do it from pure motives. What's pure motives? Pure motives simply means this. I do it without any, without any trace, shred of selfishness. There is not a selfish bit of this. It is nothing about me. It is Nothing about me being the hero. It's nothing about me being needed. It's nothing about me being able to provide that one thing that nobody else can provide. It's none of that. That's not why I do it. No hint of self. You see, the problem is, is that that self, that self sometimes can hide itself. The longer that we're Christians, the more we learn to, to take selfishness and, and kind of redefine it. So it stays there, but it sounds more Christian. And we don't even realize it's there a lot of the times. It's kind of like the, um, when the, before the Passover the, uh, in, in a Jewish household, you know, leaven, you know, leaven, like yeast, would be something that you would want to clean out of your house because leaven was symbolic of like sin. And so, you know, you would, they would make it a game. And sometimes the, the fathers especially would, would hide bits of it around the house just so the kids could find something. But I think sometimes we think we're, we're, we're like that. We think we're above selfishness, that, that it doesn't really you know, affect us, that we're truly got this humble thing and we really help just to help. Well, we're going to look a little more closely at it and find out if that's actually true or if somehow, somewhere inside of us that these selfish motives don't go away quite so easily. The first thing I want you to see, though, is something that I think people miss when they, when they look at this. They, they, they want to kind of just jump over this part, just talk about helping needy people. And that's where he, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness. So he uses that word righteousness. And sometimes we use these Christian words like righteousness, and we, we don't really know what it means, and we don't know what it looks like. Jesus tells us what it looks like. Beware of practicing your righteousness. And now he's going to give us one of several things that righteousness does. And the first thing is, righteousness gives 
to the needy. Righteousness helps people in need. You cannot say you're righteous and not help people who are in need. They don't go together. One flows from the other. James, James is going to write in in his letter, he's going to say, this is true religion. He says, true religion is taking care of the widows and the orphans. Why did he pick out the widows and the orphans? Because in the first century when James is writing, the most needy people in their society is the widows and the orphans. He says, that's true religion. Everything else is just talk. Everything else is just self-justification. It's not dying on the cross. It's not dying to self. It's not being born again and having God's spirit in us, his, his incredible supernatural love that compels us to love our enemies and love strangers and love people who are in need. No, it's something else. Helping the needy is one of the signs of righteousness. But it's only a sign of righteousness if the help is coming from pure hearts. Which, by the way, in a weird way, means that sometimes you might be righteous when you're not actually helping. Because you may have that pure heart and you may see the need and you may want to meet the need and you may think about all the hundreds of ways you could meet the need and you just can't. But that desire is there. It nags you. It never leaves you. You do all you can. Maybe all you can do is raise awareness. Maybe all you can do is contribute a little bit of money. Maybe all you can do is just pray, and maybe you're not the one who gets to deliver what's needed. But it's there in your heart. And you cannot help but do whatever you can, even if at the end of the day you can't do anything. It's a desire. It's righteousness. One of the evidences of righteousness is to help others, not for yourself, but to help others for other reasons. It's more than just helping others because they need help. Okay? But the first thing we see here is he says, he talks about the hypocrites. And he talks about the hypocrites who... who sound a trumpet as they're going along the streets. Everybody knows they're coming. The poor people are attracted to them. They're going to give their money. Everybody's going to see them and say, ooh, those guys are awesome. Look how holy they are. It's not for that. He says, hey, you do that, you'll get your reward. As a matter of fact, you got it already. People looked at you and said how awesome you are. But in verse 6, and then later on in verse 4, Jesus is saying, where's the reward really coming from? 
Where's the reward that disciples should care about? And this comes from the Father. You see, the main reason, the fundamental reason disciples help people in need is so that they might honor God. So that they might honor God. They're not helping simply because people are in need. They are helping because people are in need because otherwise you're not really helping. If you go to somebody who doesn't really have any needs and you say, I want to meet your needs, that's not helping. So yes, we help because people need help. But this fundamental reason is that we honor God. In fact, let me say this. When we help people in need, it is not just an expression of righteousness, but it pleases God. Let me put it in more kind of contemporary terms. It makes God happy. God smiles at us. He's proud of us. That should be enough. That should be enough. If you truly are a believer in Christ, if you truly believe that through faith in Jesus Christ, that that before Jesus Christ came, before the Father sent his Son, that we were hopeless, we had no way to get back to the Father. And in his abundant love and grace, he makes a way. And that when we believe, he doesn't just make a way for us to wander back, he actually comes and, and, and gets us. And he gives us his spirit, and he helps us. If you believe this, if you really believe this, it should be your highest goal in any way possible to make God smile. To honor him in some way. It should be enough. I should be able to just end it right here and we can all go out and we can all do this perfectly. That's what he's saying. You get your reward and your reward is from your Father who is in heaven. But it all has to come from this pure heart. And as I said earlier, a pure heart is one without any trace of selfish motives. The way I kind of picture it, you know, um, Paul talks about um, this, this the Bema seat of judgment. And, and, you know, it's the judgment that, that Christians will face. And the way I picture it, this isn't, by the way, it's probably going to happen. I don't think uh, God gave me that kind of insight. But this is the way I picture it. The way I picture it is that as Christians, we don't stand before God to be judged over whether we should be received or not. That's already been taken care of. If, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, it's taken care of. That judgment has been, has been made, and the judgment is grace. The judgment is salvation. The judgment is mercy. The judgment is love. No problem. But there's another judgment we face, and that judgment is, is the face of our is, is the judgment of, of, of our works. And the way I picture this is like this. And again, you're not going to find this in the Bible, so don't look. But what I, what I picture is, is that you're going to be standing there. And God is going to say, okay, bring it in. And what's going to come in 
is going to be, for some of you, a huge dump truck. For others of you, maybe a wheelbarrow. For some of us, maybe one dude with a spoon. Inside there is all of the good works we did in our lives. So some of you may have that huge truck full of good works. Others of you, the wheelbarrow. Some of you, spoon. No matter how big the pile, it's going to be dumped out right in front of you. And then God's going to say, light her up. Set it on fire. Set it on fire. And whether you started out with the big pile from the dump truck, or whether you just had the little, the little bit from the spoon, it's going to set on fire. And everything that was selfish is going to burn away. And the only thing left are those things we did from pure motives. That's all. The judgment isn't whether you're in. The judgment is, how much did you do simply to honor God without any sense of selfishness? Simply to help others without any sense of what, how you might benefit? That's all that's left. And I think if that's how it happened, I wish it would happen that way because I think it'd be kind of cool. And we're sitting there watching. You're going to see some dudes come in and it's going to be truckload after truckload. It's all going to burn away and it's just going to be a little bit. And then there's going to be some people, at first they're kind of disappointed because they, they see one dude with an eyedropper. All they got is one drop, but it's pure. your heart, everything else burns away. But here's my thing, is why wait? Why wait for a pure heart? Why not now? Why not purify it now? Why not work on those things now that even when you're doing things that are good, even when you're doing ministry, even when you're helping others, you cannot help but be, be kind of like bugged by selfishness. Why not now? And why is this so important? Well, I said part of the reason it's important is because it's what it means to, to be a disciple in a healthy church and a pure heart. The other reason is because if the world is going to see Jesus in action, if the world is going to see Jesus in action, he sees, the world sees it when, when they see us. When the, when the world sees his disciples in action, they will see Christ. You see, we're kind of caught in this tension, right? On one hand, Jesus is saying, don't do these works to draw attention to yourself. Don't blow the trumpet and make everybody look at how much you gave how much you did. Don't do that. But at the same time, Jesus was saying, don't hide your light under a bushel. Let it shine. Which way is it, Jesus? 
Oh, you do need to let your light shine. But the light doesn't bring attention to you. The light brings attention to Jesus Christ. The light brings attention to God. The light brings attention to what Christ is doing in us. And so Jesus Christ does need to be seen and heard in Christians, in how we live and how we love and how we give and how we help others. You see, I think a lot of it comes down to why we do things. It's, it's not, you know, some people think it's wrong if, if someone thanks them. And they go, oh no, it's not me, it's Jesus. It's God. It's nothing that I did. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to be thanked. What Jesus is saying is that it's wrong to do good so that you will be thanked. What he's trying to help us understand is that, that, that the Father in heaven, honoring God, him smiling upon you, him being happy, should be reward enough. And in this world, doing what is right, we do what is right, and we want to be right simply because it is right. We want to be righteous simply because it is righteous. And we know righteousness is what helps us. Helps us know God, be closer to God. Now if you really think, and this is how I used to think when I was younger, and so maybe you do too, you might be thinking like, wait a minute, isn't this just another form of selfishness? You're trying to get some reward in heaven um, isn't that it? Isn't, isn't it the same thing that all you're trying to do is, you know, shift it, but you're still basically trying to get a bigger reward, you know, when they burn everything away, yours is bigger than everybody else's? Yeah. Maybe, if you don't really understand. But if we look at Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, we get a little glimpse of heaven. We get a little glimpse of, 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 what's, of, of what it's going to be like when we actually enter the presence of Christ. It talks about the 24 elders there. And it says they, that, that they're here in this, this time of worship. And the 24 elders can be symbolic of the church. So it could actually be referring to us. But even if it doesn't refer to us, it certainly refers to those who are superior to us. And it says, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Read this part. They cast their crowns before the throne. Understand what that means? What that means is these crowns, this reward that we receive, when we truly see Jesus face to face, We'll cast them before him. We'll cast them before him. It's no longer who has the biggest crown. It's no longer who had the biggest reward. In fact, it should never have been about that. What matters is I stand before my Savior. I stand before my Lord. And when I see him in his fullness, this stuff, worthless. 
I cast it before him. So it's not the same thing. It's not a selfishness. In fact, at that point, if you think about it, it might be a burden. We have become so prideful of our crowns. But we'll cast them down. You know, I hinted at the possibility that our motives sometimes get hidden and we, we kind of dress them up in Christian language and we allow them to stay in our lives. And, and so that's, sometimes it's difficult to know they're there. And so I'm going to give you, I try to end all these sermons with some practical things. So here's some hidden signs. Your motives might be impure. Here's one. It bothers when you when you're not thanked. It bothers you when you're not thanked for doing something good. My, my, uh, <laughs> my mom was very blunt in things. And uh, I remember we'd be driving along and my dad would be driving and, and he would let somebody in. And, and my dad would be like, that person didn't even thank me. And my mom was like, is that why you did it? To just get thanked? And then my dad would be like, uh, okay. <laughs> you know? But we're all like that, right? We, we do things supposedly out of the goodness of our heart. But when we're not thanked, it bugs us. I don't want to see a show of hands, but how many of you have ever given a gift to someone and didn't get a thank you card back and it really bugged you? In fact, bugged you so much, they never got another gift from you ever. Or they kept getting smaller and smaller gifts. And what's even worse is when, is when you're not thanked, but other people are thanked for the very same thing you did. Does it bug you? Could be. A little bit of selfish motives there. How about this? When you're trying to help somebody, when you're trying to help somebody and they disagree with you, or they don't want your help, and you are personally offended. You're personally offended. You're not upset that here's this person who needs help and they're not getting help and I feel bad for them that they're not getting help, but you're personally offended that they won't receive your help. Why were you doing it in the first place? When I used to work at high school, I used to do the, the, the weight room and, and I would you know, help make workout plans, diet plans for these, for these students. And I remember one of the mothers who was a teacher she came to me and she, she said, I don't know what you told my son, but I've been telling him for years that he needs to eat more vegetables. And now he, he comes home and he goes, uh, Mom, you need to make uh, vegetables. Mr. Sanders said I need to eat vegetables. And what the good thing about the mother was, she wasn't offended that her son wasn't listening to her. She was so grateful that somebody got through to him, right? Sometimes we get offended. We get offended when we say something and we, people don't agree or they don't accept it and then somebody else says the same thing. 
And everybody goes, ooh, what a genius. Bugs us. Third one, you only help people, you only help people if you think it will do good. You only say something if you think it'll work. But otherwise, you're not going to help. Ah, I won't do any good anyways. Oh, you know, there'll be, you know, they're just going to go back and have the same problem. My mom, for the last few years when she was still working, she was a social worker. And she would tell me, like, these stories about how they would go and help these families that were at risk and, you know, so many problems and everything. And they would, they would um, on Christmas, she would work hard, collect gifts, collect money, and then they would go and they would give these gifts to these families. And she said the parents would sometimes take those gifts and they would go down to the parking lot and sell them so that they could go buy drugs. You know, when you hear stories like that, you want to be like, I don't want to help anybody. Done. It's useless, pointless. They're just going to throw it away anyways. That's what we want to say. But we will only help when we think we can save everybody. When we only help when we think that it's actually making a difference. You gotta wonder. And the fourth one is, hidden signs your motives are impure is when, is when you're judging. You're judging the person that you're helping. You're not just helping. In some ways, you're looking down on them, criticizing them. You're helping, but you got a little bit of attitude. You see, we, we learn to mask these things, but we need to know that they, they're, they're not fooling God. You might have said, well, Pastor, why didn't you instead, instead of giving us this, this kind of negative, kind of downer, because it kind of hits home, hits home for me, I know that. But why didn't you instead say, how can you have a pure heart? Give us five steps to having a pure heart. Why didn't you give, that would be so much better. We could end, we could all feel good. We could all have something to work on. Here's why. Because it's impossible. It's impossible for me to give you five steps to having a pure heart. It is impossible for you on your own to generate a pure, selfless heart. It's the work of the Spirit. It is only when we, when we come to Christ in faith and we say, I accept what you did for me. I ask for forgiveness. I repent. I now give my life to you. And Jesus promises to send us his spirit and make us new. Part of what his spirit does, part of what making us new means is now that we can have this pure heart. Have these pure motives. It's the only way it's possible. That's why we need each other. That's why we need his word. That's why we need to keep praying. That's why we need to keep being disciples. Because even with his spirit, it's hard. But without his spirit, 
it is impossible. So God, God has made us to be this way. He's given us a way to have pure hearts. It's only through Jesus Christ. 